Good morning. So I just found my quiz that I did with the youth on Sunday night, last Sunday night. So if we've got time afterwards, hey, stick around for another quiz. I'm going to confess something pretty quickly here because I think the front row are going to hear during that last song, my stomach started rumbling pretty loud. If you hear it, sorry, my cornflakes were quite a while ago. So apologies for that. Uh, many of you, well, many of you might or will remember what it was like to, to learn how to drive. So on your 17th birthday or maybe around it, uh, you'd either go out with your driving instructor or maybe a parent or a guardian to get that first experience of driving. And so I, I learned to drive in two very different cars. And so my driving instructor had a diesel Fiesta. And so we're going back to about 1999 here. So, uh, so diesel Fiestas were maybe a little bit different to what they are now. But anyways, in that diesel Fiesta, it was just a dream to learn how to drive in. Uh, and so one of the things that you learn about when you're learning to drive is the biting point. And finding that biting point is just that difficult thing, that, you, that hurdle you need to get over. And it's with a diesel Fiesta, when you find the, the biting point on that, effectively the whole car shunted forward. So you knew you were there. The, the other car I learned to drive in was my parents' Nissan Micra. Uh, and so this was like a P-Reg. It was like the red cloud one. It was the, the, I'm very grateful that I could learn to drive in this car but it was the most uncool car that there has ever, ever been. And I find it slightly surprising because uh, some of you uh, will know my dad, and my dad's quite into his cars. In fact, one of the earliest memories that I have is as a three-year-old of them selling one of their cars. And so they had a black Escort XR3, which was just, uh, even at three, I knew this thing was cool. And, and I think they traded it in for like an Orion Gia or something like that. So going from the Escort to the Orion was a little bit different. So anyways, I learned to drive in this Nissan Micra. And uh, thankfully, it survived both myself and my sister learning how to drive and then driving it for a few years, although it did have a few prangs in it. Um, but anyways, finding the biting point in that Nissan Micra was difficult. So I remember going out on my 17th birthday with my dad. I think this was the one and only time I went out with my dad that we could actually, <laughs> yeah. We decided it was best for our relation, relationship afterwards if he didn't teach me. So, but the Nissan Micra, to find the biting point in that was effectively a slightly different tone change in the engine, and that was it. Uh, and so basically that evening I thrashed the clutch like nothing else. It was burning to pieces. And so, but the biting point is one of those things that you learn when uh, you're going through all those driving lessons and eventually you have your driving test. One of the other things that you learn about, and you're completely unaware of this as you sit in the back seat of the car or in the passenger seat, is that you have a blind spot. So this is the area that you can't see in any of your mirrors. So if you're looking in your rear view mirror or you're looking in your side mirrors, there's just that kind of spot just back in there and you can't see what is happening in there. And so you need to, before you do a maneuver, anyone who's learning to drive, make sure you do this or if you've forgotten to do this, drivers, please do this. You're meant to do that. We check over your shoulder or check over your shoulder just to make sure you know what is in your blind spot. Uh, I found a statistic on this, but it's for America. I couldn't find one for the UK. But in America, there are over 800,000 accidents each year caused by people being unaware of what is happening in their blind spot. 
And even I can think on a couple of like pretty close occasions that I've had of going down the dual carriageway uh, and pulling out to go past someone and not having checked my blind spot and having to quickly pull back in because someone has honked their horn to save me from crashing into them. Blind spots can be dangerous. If we're not continually asking ourselves, do I have a blind spot? What is happening in there? These can have detrimental impacts on our lives. And that's what we're going to look at today. So let me pray and then we'll we'll continue. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for what an incredible gift it is to us to have your very words um, before us and where we can study them together. So Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes, open our minds, and enlighten our hearts now. In Jesus' name, amen. So as Mike said, and as he read, we're in John chapter 3. And so there we find Nicodemus, uh, a Pharisee, spending time with Jesus. Nicodemus comes in the night as he's got a reputation to uphold. He didn't want to be seen in the light of day going to this miracle worker with genuine questions to who he is. And I love just even in that, we see how Jesus responds in there. It's the middle of the night. He's got someone, a Pharisee, someone who he knows he's going to have constant running and running and running. But even though it's the middle of the night, Jesus welcomes him in, it seems. And they have this incredible conversation with each other. And it's on a one-to-one with a Pharisee in the middle of the night that we find probably the most quoted scripture of John 3.16. We'll be getting to that next week. But I just love that, you know, Jesus, he just want, he spent, he's willing to spend time with us at any point of any day. There's no time we can come to him where it's inconvenient. He loves it when we come to spend time with him. As we've gone through John, this is the first time that we've properly encountered the Pharisees. So they were mentioned in chapter 1, where they sent priests and Levites to find out more about who Jesus is. But here comes one of them, Nicodemus, to find out more about Jesus for himself. But before we go any further, I just wanted to look at, so who were the Pharisees? So as you go through the Gospels and the book of Acts, we hear about a few different names. So you hear about like the Sanhedrin, you hear about the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the scribes. And, and it's easy maybe just as we're, as we're reading through this, just to think they're just synonyms uh, for one another, but it's not quite as simple as that. And so we'll start with the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the place of authority there. It was the final authority and decisions that affected the religious and political life for all Jews. And the Sanhedrin consisted of two parties, and they were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And these two parties actually bitterly opposed each other. The Sadducees had closer ties to Rome and were generally very wealthy. The Pharisees, as a a party, were made up of people from all walks of life, farmers, merchants, and fishermen, Uh, And some writers estimate that in Jesus' day, there was about 6,000 of them. These groups came into existence in 160 BC, so around about the time of the Maccabean Revolt. Uh, And the two parties, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they held different ideologies and theological beliefs. So they opposed each other. But of what we see, what they did unite on was their dislike of Jesus. They saw Jesus as a threat to their ways. 
to their privileged position in Israel. Jesus didn't fit with the Messiah that they wanted. So they cooperated in his arrest, pushed for his death, stirred up a mob, put pressure on a Roman governor, and had Jesus nailed to a cross. The other name that I mentioned there uh, is the scribes. Uh, and so they weren't like a distinguishable party in themselves, but they were those of like, like learned teachers and authoritative leaders and experts in Jewish law. And as I've done a bit of reading on them, they seemed to be more closely associated with the Pharisees, but they weren't like a group in their own right. But unlike the Pharisees and the Sadducees who we saw came in in 160 BC, the scribes, you can actually see that term used throughout the Old Testament. Uh, and so about two years ago or something, we went through Ezra and Nehemiah together. And so Ezra is described as being a scribe. Each of these groups encountered Jesus in his three years of ministry, and they oppose him. So Nicodemus was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were passionate about the law. However, they added to it. They created traditions and laws that put distance between man and the possibility of sin. So they layered law upon law. For example, God said not to work on the Sabbath, so they created laws for what constituted work. In doing this, however, they drew people's attention away from the original command, away from its intended purpose, and away from God. They had amassed hundreds not thousands of traditions and laws, and they were very concerned about the details of them, not on who those original God-given laws were designed to bring the people of Israel closer to. These additional laws, these traditions, this way of life for them, it created blind spots. And this passage reveals, well, I'm going to look at three of them that Nicodemus and the Pharisees had. So the nation of Israel, they believed in three promises made through the prophets in the Old Testament. They believed in the regathering of Israel after the exile in Babylon. They believed in cleansing and spiritual transformation of God's people and the coming reign of the Messiah over Israel and over the whole world. Now, they believed that actually two of those things had already happened. The regathering of Israel, and they also believed that they had seen the cleansing and transformation, spiritual transformation. You see, they saw the likes of the Pharisees being so strong in the law, and so strong about what was clean and what was unclean. They saw that as examples of transformation. From the outward appearance, Nicodemus and the Pharisees, they may have looked as people who had been transformed. So here was a religious leader, a Pharisee, an educated man, an earnest man. By outward appearances, it would seem that he was already transformed, yet he was not. A few weeks ago, uh, we looked at what it meant to be born again as we were in John chapter 1 meant to have that new heart, to have that new life in Christ. And Jesus makes it clear in this passage that it's not something that you or I can do. Another way to say born again is to say born off above. 
Jesus says, you must be born of the Spirit. And the Spirit does what He will do. Spiritual transformation is not something that Nicodemus brings about. Nicodemus is able to control this as much as he can control the wind. The Pharisees relied on their rules for that cleansing and transformation. Their layer upon layer of rules they felt was enough. It was what they placed their trust in. But Jesus clearly says, that does not work. You must be born again, born of water and spirit. It is only in God. We just sang that song, Jesus, only Jesus. Trusting in the cleansing that Jesus provides through his sacrifice on the cross for our sins. Trusting in God for that transformation to come by the power of his spirit. Who do we trust in for that cleansing and transformation? Do we rely on Jesus, only Jesus? Or are we tempted in our own ways to try and think, I can live to a certain standard of life? Jesus' words forever exclude the possibility of salvation by our own efforts. Our nature is so gripped by sin that an activity, an intervention, a move of the power of God, a move of the Holy Spirit is necessary for us to be welcomed into the kingdom of God. Nicodemus needed to let go of his reliance on the rules and instead rely wholly on God. It's Jesus, only Jesus. We may all have different outward appearances, but it matters what happens in here. And friends, there's no amount of good living we can do. There's no amount of good works that we can do. We have to completely trust in Jesus to cleanse us from that sin that has blocked that relationship with us and God. And when Jesus comes, he comes and steps into the breach and he takes our sin upon himself and he cleanses us. We are seen through the blood of Jesus. We're seen as white as snow. We're seen as saints and not sinners. But it's only in him. It is only in him. The next, sorry, the next blind spot we find is how the Pharisees read and understood the scriptures. So in verse 9 and 10, we read, So Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Nicodemus was a teacher, someone who had a position of influence in Israel, someone the people would have trusted in showing them who God was and what a life of living for him looked like. Someone who had probably spent hours, days, and years studying the Scriptures. So there was an expectation of Nicodemus to know certain things and to lead people towards God, not away from God. Yet, as we find here in this passage, he was blind to who those scriptures revealed to be the Messiah, the man that was standing right in front of him. As we approach God's word, we surrender ourselves time and time again. As with everything, 
I think it's very easy for us to read into Scripture with an agenda, to read into it what we want it to say, to look for it to validate our own opinions rather than allowing it to form ours. And I think that's why I really love how we're just going to spend so much time in the Gospel of John. So I think I've said this before, we're probably going to be here for about a year and a half or something like that. But just going verse by verse, going scripture by scripture, it's not that we're picking and choosing what we want to do here. We want to be led by the Spirit. We want to see what God has to say in our lives. But we need to come with that surrendered heart time and time again. And there's three verses I want to to share with you of how I think it's really important for us to pray these things whenever we uh, spend time in God's Word. And so it's something that myself and Rachel try to do with our kids. And so each night we try and do a Bible passage with them. uh, And we're trying to get them used to the idea of, okay, who's going to pray for us now? Uh, And I love that, well, normally sometimes they take a little bit of arm twisting with this. Um, But we ask them to say, you know, can can someone pray that God would help us to understand his word? We all need to do that. So here's three verses that I think we need to pray whenever we come to God's word. So the first one is Psalm 119, verse 18, where it says, Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Open my eyes. Then Luke 24, verse 45 And so this is after the resurrection and just before Jesus ascends into heaven. He's there with his disciples. And there it says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. We need to pray that, that God would open our minds. And last one here, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 16 to 18. It's the words of Paul here. It says, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Whenever we come to God's word, I think it is important that we pray those three things. Open my eyes, God. Open my mind, and enlighten my heart. We must rely on the Spirit to help us, to help us to surrender our agendas, to surrender our opinions, to surrender what we want the Bible to say, but to come to it with that surrendered heart saying, God, I want to know more of you. I want to know more of your word because my hope is in you, not in me. We need to pray that as we approach the precious Word of God, that we do not manipulate it, that we do not miss what it says, but that we are true to it time and time and time again. Nicodemus had influence over others. As I said, he was a teacher of Israel. Our blind spots, they don't just impact ourselves but they can so easily impact others. For all who stand here where I'm standing, for all those who are preaching God's words throughout Aberdeen, Shire, and in Scotland, please pray. Please pray that everyone stays true to this word. Because I don't think it's always the case. 
I think it's genuinely extremely sad what we hear being preached. A, few, a number of months back, um, the young adults small group, um, Matthew Milne was, was um, leading that night, and I can't remember completely the context of it, but he did a quick look online at just different things that were being taught in places. So he went to like TikTok and Instagram, and so places where, you know, we might actually just go to get a snippet of something. And he was like, you know, this is what's online. What do you think of it? And to be honest, folks, it was extremely concerning what was there. It wasn't the truth of God's word. Some of it was far from it. We need to pray that our eyes would be opened, that our minds would be opened, that our hearts would be enlightened. Let's not let blind spots appear because of the way that we approach God's word. At the root of the blind spots was a misunderstanding of who Jesus was. As Nicodemus approaches Jesus, he calls him a rabbi. So there was respect in this title. And you can see that Nicodemus seems to recognize that there is more to Jesus. So at the start of our passage, um, it says, so from verse 2, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher. Come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He acknowledges that the signs and miracles that Jesus has already done can only be done if God is with him. But he doesn't see Jesus for who he truly is. You see, Nicodemus, the Pharisees, many of Israel in that time, they were expecting a military Messiah to come. Someone who's going to like usher out the Romans, conquer them, and give Israel back its independence, its freedom, and its power. That's what they were looking forward to. That's what they were hoping for. Jesus reveals in this passage who he truly is. He reveals that he is God and that he is here to save his people. And he does that in verse 13 and 14. So if you want to read that with me. So from verse 13, it says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So that verse 13, let me read that again. It says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So in this verse, Jesus is speaking of his divine nature, that he is fully God. Someone who has been in the perfect presence of God in heaven, and he has come from that place to be with us. He, Jesus, is the Lord of heaven. This verse speaks of his authority. As Jesus taught, his authority wasn't founded in anyone else, anything else, anything fallible. His authority was perfect because he is God. He was saying to Nicodemus, listen to me. I know the truth. I have the authority. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in this verse, he also pretty clearly reveals to Nicodemus who he was. So in this passage, and you see it throughout the Gospels, that Jesus, he often refers to himself as the Son of Man. And so the Son of Man, that was a term that you first find in the book of Daniel. Uh, and for all of Israel, when they heard that term, Son of Man, it, they, they, the idea is that they thought, oh, that's the Messiah that's coming. 
So Jesus is saying, I'm the son of man. I am the Messiah. Jesus develops this statement even more in verse 14. I'll read that again. He says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This feels like a pretty confusing statement to give. It's like, why on earth is Jesus talking about serpents and looking at serpents at this point in the middle of the night with Nicodemus? And so, but this is actually found in a passage in the book of Numbers. So in Numbers chapter 21, uh, verses 4 to 9, you find the story. So I'll, I'll paraphrase it a bit. So the people of Israel, they're walking in the wilderness, and they're grumbling once again about the lack of food and water. They are impatient, and they are asking, why have we been taken out of Egypt to die? So God sent fiery serpents among them, and it says, because of these serpents, many of them died. The people, in turn, they cry out to Moses, and they recognize their guilt. They recognize that they've been mourning and complaining, and they need to turn back to God. And they ask Moses to intercede on their behalf for the Lord to remove these serpents. So in verse 8 and 9 in that passage, we read, And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Jesus is likening himself to this pole but he's the better version of it. He's the one that is a million times better than it. Anyone, he's saying, if you look upon me, if you trust in me, you will be saved. Isaiah 45, 22 says, look to me and be saved, all you the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. In the middle of the night, it's just the two of them, Jesus and Nicodemus. There's this invitation to Nicodemus to look at Jesus, to put his trust not in his own works, not his own knowledge, not his own idea of cleanliness, but as Israel did hundreds of years, hundreds of years ago, to look upon who God sent, to look upon his son Jesus to save him. Jesus is making it really clear here to this Pharisee, I'm not just a teacher. I am much greater than someone who merely points to the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Let me turn the words of Jesus to what they mean for you if you have trusted in him as the way, the truth, and the life. If you have trusted in him for that cleansing and transformation, that's for that salvation that comes from Christ alone, it means if you are born again, you will see the kingdom of God. If you are born of water and spirit, you will enter the kingdom of God. If you believe in him, you will have eternal life. These are promises that are for us. In this passage, we've seen the blind spots of Nicodemus and the Pharisees. We've seen how they've missed who Jesus was who he was revealed to be in the scriptures and their need of that cleansing and transformation to come from God, not from what they can do. Nicodemus comes up again a couple of more times in scripture and it's not completely clear 
of where Nicodemus is at. So we see him again in John chapter 7 uh, as a dispute of who Jesus arises. And Nicodemus, still described as a Pharisee in this passage, he defends Jesus and suggests that he be given a fair hearing. But it's not completely clear if he believes or not. We see him again in John 19. So after the death of Jesus, as he and Joseph of Arimathea, they prepare uh, Jesus' body for his burial. So Nicodemus, he takes with him expensive perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. And they prepare Jesus' body for burial and then take him to the tomb. Now, does that show us that there's been this change? I don't know. I really wish we knew. (laughs) Having a story that's not got a complete end to it kind of does my head in a little bit. And so I really wish that Scripture kind of said, and Nicodemus believed, or something like that. But we don't know. But I guess we can have our desires in it. My desire is that through these times that Nicodemus interacted with Jesus, that he spent time with him, and he allowed the words of Jesus to penetrate into his heart, that the answer is yes, that he did believe. I so want that to be the answer. And I so want that to be the answer for each and every single one of us in this room. For us to see Jesus for who he completely is, for who he is revealed to be in the scriptures, of how we desperately need him. And that is my prayer for each and every single one of us. And if you don't know Jesus today, if you're here as a a visitor, maybe this is your first time here in church, or or maybe you've just been kind of checking out church, um, feel that maybe God is leading you somewhere, my invitation to you today is come to Jesus and give him everything. Come to Jesus for forgiveness of your sins. Recognize that that sin that sadly is in all of us has separated us from God, but in Jesus, he brings us back together in him. Come and put your trust in him completely. I think the easy thing to do after spending time in this passage um, is to think, oh, Look at those Pharisees who completely missed the point. And we could just leave it there. But I think we need to go further than that. We need to examine our hearts, examine our minds, and ask ourselves, what might our blind spots be? And that's where we start with. We start with asking ourselves, where are our blind spots? It's almost too easy to say, well, I'm not too sure where mine are, but I know what that person says. And God, if you want to use me to tell them, that's okay. (laughs) But we don't do that. We come with a humble spirit saying, God, will you show me my blind spots? We need humility. We need to ask ourselves, do we truly see Jesus for who he is? Do we read scripture with a surrendered open heart? Are we trusting in Jesus for our salvation? I think it's a desperately, desperately sad reality that for many people, they will go and be a part of a church week in, week out for decades. They'll serve on maybe umpteen rotas in that church. And maybe even from an outward appearance, they may seem to have that clean life. They may seem to have, oh, they've got it all together. Oh, they're a good Christian. They're a super Christian. But 
they may not have experienced this new birth in Christ. It's desperately sad. Truly, truly, it's the words of Jesus, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Or maybe it's other areas in your life. Maybe it's areas of unforgiveness. Maybe you're holding a grudge against someone and desiring that, you know, that they would get what they deserve because they hurt me so much. Yet we're called to forgive as we have been forgiven. Maybe it's in other areas of your life. Maybe it's to do with money. Maybe it's to do with what you allow to influence you in social media or other media outlets. Maybe it's what you're watching. Maybe it's the gossipy conversations that you might engage with at work. Maybe it's how you speak about a coworker or about a manager or how you treat someone that works for you. I don't know. It could be a, it could be a whole host of things. But we need to ask humbly, God, would you reveal them to us? Because we want to be closer to you. We don't want that danger lurk in the background. And as we ask it in ourselves, we also need to ask it as a church family. Are we doing things just because that's how they've always been done? Sometimes I think in church we can get so focused on how we do things rather than on why we do things. Are we as a part of the body of Christ fulfilling the call that has been placed on us? I do pray that we would do all things for God's glory in response to his love for us, asking the Spirit to continually guide us. David Platt, he's a, a pastor, I think in Washington now, uh, and he's an author of books like, uh, like Radical. Uh, he speaks of blind spots, of how they can be small and subtle. They can be a series of small steps that we seem to easily justify or make excuses for that before you know have turned into a chasm. It's quite easy to make excuses for the things that we do. Ah, it's no big deal. Everyone is doing it. Ah, it's just a phase of life I'm in. I can, I can see that. I'll, I'll sort it out later in life. Or, oh, that's just your understanding of the Bible. Or, I'm not hurting anyone by doing this. Well, the Bible doesn't specifically say something on that. So easy to use these excuses and let a blind spot just kind of sit there and let it fester away. But we humbly ask God to reveal, where is my blind spot? What do I need to surrender? The Pharisees didn't want to surrender their prominent position in society. Jesus threatened that, and so they despised him, and they eventually had him killed. Blind spots can start as small and subtle, but they can turn into chasms. We ask these questions with a desire for holiness in our life. We ask it with a full knowledge that God wants all of our lives. He wants all of our obedience because he is worthy of all. We ask these questions in community as well, building trusting relationships with one another, asking them to help us uncover those blind spots. The isolation is something that we all know about. It's something that, to varying degrees, we have experienced over the last few years. And I do think for all of us, it takes that conscious effort to dive back into those really life-giving uh, friendships of where we're accountable with one another, of where we build one another up, of where we encourage each other. 
but it takes effort. And I don't know about you, but I think something like friendship that sometimes it feels like it takes more effort than it did pre-pandemic. I don't know if that's a reality or not, but there's something of, I think we're just kind of got used to just sitting on our, in, our, in our homes doing our own thing, and we're all quite content in it. But we are made to be in relationship. We're made to be in community because it's good for us, because we need each other. And with that, don't just listen to yes voices in your life. Now, we live in a world of algorithms that basically just show us what we want to see, that show us what we're going to agree with. But it's really important that we listen to a whole range of voices. And I think that is something that has the absolute beauty in the church here, that we have people from lots of different backgrounds, lots of different cultures, lots of different ages in here as well, and lots of different denominations that have come together here. And I think that is brilliant, because I think we can all really learn from one another. But we need to listen to each other in that. We need to allow each other to call each other to holiness. Yes, to do it in a loving way, not to do it in a judging way. But I think sometimes we can pass on that because they're difficult conversations to have. They're not easy ones. But that's something as a church family that we do together because we can see that they're important. Because we don't want those blind spots to, to sit there and to fester and for them to be small and subtle, but to grow into those chasms. Let's listen to one another. As we come to a close, we'll move into communion in a few moments. Let me just conclude with these words that we find in Colossians 3. It's just the first few verses. It says, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Turn to Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed upon Jesus, only Jesus. And I really hope in this that you don't feel like, Scott, you're just asking us to do more here. I don't feel like I'm asking you to do more. I feel I'm asking you to let go. And I think that's an important thing to let go of those blind spots, recognize them and surrender them completely to God. Set your mind on Jesus. Seek him above all other things. Just before we come into communion, I thought it would just give us just a, just a minute just to pause in the silence and for you to have that time, just you and God. It is asking him by the power of his spirit that he would reveal those, maybe there's blind spots in there, Maybe there's things that you need to surrender now so that they don't grow into those chasms. Let's just pause for a moment now.
Father, we come humbly before you now, recognizing our deep need of you. Recognizing the brokenness that is in our lives, but celebrating the restoration that comes from Jesus. Father, would we see Jesus for who he truly is? Not for who we might want him to be, but for who he is. Holy God Almighty. Father, as we come to your word, Lord, help us to come with that surrendered heart. Open our eyes, open our minds, and lighten our hearts, God. And would we put our whole trust in Jesus for salvation, not in anything else, not in traditions, not in laws, not in our works, but in only what Jesus can do. And we thank you that when we put our trust in you, you give us life to the full. You give us life as a child of God. Life with hope and a future. And Father, we confess that sometimes we allow things, uh, those blind spots, just to be there as part of our lives. And Lord, we come and ask that you would reveal those to us now. Would you help us by the power of the Spirit to surrender those, to move away from those, to let go of them. Because Father, we don't want anything that gets in the way of our relationship with you. We don't want anything there that might grow into a chasm. We want you to have our all because you are worthy of us all. We pray this in Jesus' name.